Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. Welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 117. I say it all the time. If you're not following on social media, please do. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you're not following, then you missed out on a very special announcement earlier this week. Next week's episode 118, my guest is Jack Nicholas. I'm not kidding. It is real. I had an incredible conversation with the 18-time major championship winner. That episode will drop next week, Wednesday, February 26th. So make sure you're subscribed to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, however you get this podcast. Make sure you're subscribed so you're notified right away when that episode drops. There are more incredible episodes to come. I always announce them on social media first, so make sure you're following along. All those links are available in the show notes of this episode. I mentioned last time, I'll be launching the Road to Augusta series very soon. There are six amateurs in the field at the Masters this year. I will introduce them all to you. From the U.S. Amateur Champion Andy Ogletree to the Asia Pacific Champion Yushin Lin. You'll get to know them all. Just a fun way to get excited about the Masters. So keep an eye out for that. Probably going to launch that in a few weeks. Congrats to the number 7th ranked Texas men's golf team. They took home the title at the Prestige at La Quinta in California. Pepperdine came in second. They are still the hottest team in the country. Lots of great individual performances of note from some of the previous guests of this podcast. Sahith Gala, Joey Verzid, they wrapped up top 10s. Austin Ekro from Oklahoma State played great. Pearson Cootie, top 10. Henry Schimp from Stanford, all great performances. Really looking forward to catching up with these guys over the next few weeks this spring. So our guest this week is Ann Walker. She is the head coach of women's golf at Stanford University. Really enjoyed this conversation with Ann, not only talking about her coaching career, but her playing career and how she made it to Cal Berkeley all the way from Scotland. Obviously, some lucky breaks and some fortunate circumstances made that happen. We spoke about some memorable moments at Stanford. You know, she did win a national championship. Her approach to getting the most out of her players really enjoyed learning about that. And yes, of course, we had to share a couple funny stories about some of her former players. Now, I know that I always mention to leave a review in Apple Podcasts, which is still greatly appreciated, but I also want to remind you to share episodes, especially this one, with anyone that is involved in junior golf. Might be a player, a parent, volunteer, anyone that's closely invested in the success of a junior golfer. This is a very important episode for them to listen to. It provides great insight into what college coaches are thinking about, how they recruit, and what are the most important things that they look for before bringing a player onto their team. So let's get started. Coach, thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. I'm glad to be a part of your show. Thanks for asking. Glad you're able to join today. You know, I spoke with Conrad uh, Ray, men's coach at Stanford, and now we're shifting over to the, to the lady side of the farm, so to speak. So, um, college golf it's really a unique animal where it's two seasons with a kind of a two-month break in the middle you have your four to five tournaments in the fall then everything ramps up in the spring what are some of the things you do in the winter just to maybe unplug or reset your approach for the following spring huh, well that's actually a funny question i have a great answer is that over time i figured out exactly what you've said really it's become our only downtime is really in the winter this last couple of years, I was like, okay, what can I get outdoors and do that would be really a fun thing? So I picked up skiing two years ago okay. and uh, committed to learning that just as a way to try to get away in the winter, exactly what you said, and kind of unplug from it all because it has become a year-round sport. Coach Ray is already an amazing skier growing up in Minnesota, so he's been giving me tips across the hallway. But um, yeah, that's what we committed to, and we just got back from five days up in Canada at Whistler. So it's working out pretty well. That's not too bad. So you're a national championship winning coach. So if you're a scratch handicap in that profession, what's your handicap right now skiing? I, I mean, are we talking like, well. I mean, are we, are we like, are we taking two off the tee and maybe, you know, we need some mulligans or how, how, uh, well, let's just say that I got done my first blues a couple of weeks ago okay. and, uh, 
Yep. On our final day in Canada, I did all blues all day. So what does that give me in a handicap? I'm going to go with an 18 or a 20. Oh, okay. Uh, wow. I, was... I would say, I would definitely say my, my self judgment is high. You know, that comes with the territory of being a coach and, sure. uh, having been a, a, supposedly a great golfer at one time. It's so long ago. I can't remember, but supposedly so, um, but I'm going to go 18. Okay. Heading towards single digits in the next couple of years. Clearly, I'm nowhere near that level. I went to Breckenridge a few couple of years ago and did not come back injured. So I view that as a as a really big accomplishment. Well, that probably gives you a 20 handicap right there. Okay. Yeah. That's really all I was shooting for. I was like, all right, if I, <laughs> if I fall down, then yeah. So I was just trying to, trying to come back in one piece. No, um, it's pretty fun, though. It's just a good way to get outside and... Um, yeah, we've just really seen college golf ramp up, especially the recruiting stuff in the summers. We run big camps here at Stanford for sure. three weeks in end of June, July, um, come right off the national championship. And then before you know it, you're circling up. We have official visits now in the fall and, uh, all our team travels. So it's, it's busy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to get into the day job. We're going to talk a little bit about college golf, Stanford, your career as a coach. You know, yes, you did play back in the day. I'm not going to let you slide on that. I used to play stuff. So we'll, we'll, we'll get into that too. But listeners are probably picking up a slight accent from you. So let's find out how a girl from Lanarkshire, Scotland, gets across the pond to play her college golf at Berkeley at Cal of all places. So Let's let's go back a little bit, give listeners a little bit of an introduction as to how you got into the game. Talk to me about when you started picking up golf. I mean, I'm assuming in Scotland it's almost it's a birthright. It has to happen. So how does how does golf occur for you and how did how'd you get started in the game? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, it is kind of part of every family. And so my dad always played every Monday night after work with um friends. He still plays with those same guys. I mean, that's forty years worth of that. Oh, it's the best on a Monday night. And, um, but we grew up in a farm or I grew up in a farm and I got to the age of like 12, 13. And the summers were pretty long because my mom had her own business, but it was out of the farm. She was a florist. Sure. And so really I was getting a little bit of cabin fever in the midst of summer in Scotland. And it was at a time, you know, you're 13, you don't really want to be home all day with your mom and she's doing her flowers. <laughs> so my parents were pretty strict and they, the big rule was that you couldn't just go hang around town. That was kind of their saying, you know, you're not just going to go hang around town. So the idea was, I thought, well, what about golf? And they said, yeah, that'd be fine. So I started that first summer. I got clubs for Christmas uh, as I was turning 13. Uh, so that was 1993. And, um, yeah, I, I went up to the, the golf course. I remember it very well. Played My parents set up for me to play with this gal, a girl who was a couple of years older than me. And we had a blast. And the rest of that summer, and this is not a joke, this is absolutely what happened. I played at least 36 every day, and there was a lot of days I played 54. My dad would drop me on his way to work because it was right by his work at like 7.45, 8, and then I would call to get picked up as the sun was going down, which in Scotland is give or take 9 to 11, right. depending on what time. And I was just there all day, every day, absolutely hooked on the game, just loved it, met a bunch of kids, we played, we just, we had the time of our lives. So this is your introduction to the game. This is your start. I'm assuming this just feels normal. Like this isn't, like if, when you hear something like that, like you said, you know, this isn't a joke. If people are saying that or kids are saying that I play 54 a day, they're going to just say, wow, you have a, I mean, don't you have anything else going on? Is there any other interest yeah. in that? I mean, was this just. <laughs> well, I really didn't. I lived on a farm, so I really didn't have anything else going on. Okay. Okay. But, uh, but no, I just loved it. It was a funny thing. It just, I, I think it's the way, you know, that we want it to all be for our kids right. where the minute I got a club in my hand and I got out there, I was just like, oh my gosh. And I couldn't get enough of it. And I was fortunate enough too. you know, I started that very first 18 holes I ever played. I shot 132 and that was with a whiff on the very first hole. I remember with a five wood, okay. but I remember that round almost. And I shot 132 and then the next day I shot 115 and it was that sort of addiction of like, oh, I shot 115. Wait, I think I could shoot 110. Right. And then it was 105. And then it was like, okay, I want to break a hundred. And I was obsessed with breaking a hundred and then, you know, 95 and then 90 and um, just the joy of like, uh, of this constant striving for just being one shot better. What, uh, what's your lowest career round? 
Uh, it was actually at Claremont Country Club right here. It's an Alistair McKenzie course. It was a 65. There you go. And, uh, yeah, the fun part of that run, there's kind of a funny story goes with that. I was at dinner with some friends the night before, and we were all playing that next day. And they were, you know, trash talking who was going to be low. And, and it was right after I graduated, I think, or I was just in my senior year. I can't remember. And we were, there was all this bantering going back and forth. And I finally got really ticked with the, or, the, or one friend, Robbie, and I said, Rob, I'm going to shoot a 65 tomorrow and I'm going to beat you. And there was some other words went with it. Okay. And the next day, lo and behold, I birdied the last hole to shoot a 65 and it's become this like legendary joke. Um, and I've never played Rob again because I want to just leave it right there. Oh, yeah. That you're done. Yeah, yeah, you're done. We don't need to go. <laughs> yeah, need, I'm done. Yeah. You're go, you're, it was a really fun run. You don't, you don't need to go back to the well on that one. So, all right. So this is this gives us a perfect understanding of how golf became an addiction with you, how it became such your passion, but still we're leaving out how you get from Lanarkshire, which is, I guess, Glasgow, 45 minutes from Edinburgh. It's right there. Okay. Connect the dots for me. How do you get to Berkeley of all places? Yeah, really fortuitous. Honestly, it was um, a lot of things just coming together at the right time, but yeah, so my golf career kind of took off and I was fortunate enough. I played for Scotland and in Europe and, and home internationals and some other stuff and was doing really well. And I was all set to go to the University of Edinburgh. I was going to be studying city and time planning. And it was end of July. It was the the British Open was at Royal Trin that year. Justin Leonard won. I remember that. Yep. And uh, I got this call from the director of the West of Scotland Girls Golf. And she said, hey, you know, we have this Scot- uh, this." golf coach from America. And in those days, now you go to the British girls and there's more coaches than there were at the U S girls. But in those days, that wasn't a thing. So, uh, she said, Hey, we have this, you know, she's connected with us through a friend of a friend at San Francisco club. And she's looking for kids that she can recruit and you have to be, you know, X, Y, Z in academics and you have to be a certain age, which was graduating and your golf game has to be a certain level. And I think you're a good fit. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to university of Edinburgh. But in Scotland, you don't start until mid to late October. And so she said, well, can you just do me a favor? She's coming all this way. Can can you just act somewhat interested? <laughs> and and, um, she, and I was like, you know, and so then I thought about it. And then I thought, you know, maybe I am really interested. California. I mean, that sounds pretty nice. So I actually called Nancy. I got the number and I called her before she made her trip over. And we had been as a family to Disney World a couple of times in Florida. So I knew the time difference was five hours to America. And, but I didn't realize America had multiple time zones. That was kind of a foreign notion to me. And so here I am calling Nancy at what I thought was going to be 7 a.m. her time, but it was 4 a.m. California time. And I, she doesn't pick up. I leave a voicemail and then she, I don't hear back. So the next day I think, well, maybe I should go one hour earlier because I was calling her home number. And so I go one hour earlier, it's three in the morning, California time. And Jay and Nancy had just had a newborn. (laughs) None of this do I know. And her husband answers and you could tell he was kind of like, who are you? And why are you calling? And that was back when my accent was so thick that he couldn't even understand me. All he was getting was blah, 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 Nancy. (laughs) He's like, okay, I think it's for you. (laughs) Um, And so anyway, she came to watch me that next week in this tournament uh, in Glasgow. and. This is a true story, too. I actually shot my career low that day, which at that time was 69. Okay. And I, we got done off the golf course, and she said, uh, wow, that was really impressive. You played great. Like, you know, is this kind of typical? Is this how you always play? And I said, yes, it is. Nice. <laughs> she said, okay, well, then I think we should get you over to California. And that was kind of what happened. It literally happened like that, and I went home that night. She came by, met my parents. My mom was like, wait, who's this? I said, right. oh, it's a lady from California, and I might go there in January to play. <laughs> She's like, okay. Yeah, and then off yeah, I went. Yeah, because I wanted to ask you, you know, you're, you're saying that your parents are strict. They don't want you just hanging around town just, just doing nothing. Uh, you know, sure, you're going to California, and you're going to a university, and she meets the coach. But what do you or your parents know about Berkeley, about the American colleges? Nothing. Nothing. Nothing, nothing, nothing. We, I mean, we had just gotten an uh, email address just before this. I remember specifically because Nancy asked if I could email her and I said, well, not yet, but I will be in a couple of weeks. Um, and so it wasn't like, unless we kind of were going to the library, we really didn't know anything. Right. But then a good friend of my mom's, my mom happened to say, oh, 
yeah, some school in America, Berkeley. And she said, oh, that's a really good school. Smart. I, that's one of the better ones yeah. in America. And so that was good. But, you know, I have to say, just to go back to that, we really trusted Coach McDaniel Nancy, who's still a very close friend. Uh, I played for her and then ended up coaching. She was fortunate enough to give me my first co- uh, coaching job there yeah. for six years. And, uh, you know, you just, you can tell when a person's a good person. And it was obvious when she said, you know, this wouldn't be a mistake. You would be getting a great education, a great experience. Uh, she left out all the stuff about Berkeley and the protests and the very interesting things that go on at Berkeley. <laughs> but other than that, she told us uh, we believed her and she was right. Yeah. Well, you, you had this great career. I mean, uh, you know, student athlete at Cal, you're three-time captain of their team, you know, multiple honors, Pac-10 selections. Um, you're in their Hall of Fame, actually, also. 2013, you got inducted to the California Athletics Hall of Fame. Um, here's the question I want to ask you. This, this And we're going to go back and forth on this quite a bit, but, but Pac-12, you know, you're there 98 to 2002, I believe, and, you know, I'm looking at the last five years and four out of the five national champions, Pac-12, even going back, you know, 20 years. If you don't include Duke, who kind of crashes the party every once in a while, it's really women's golf at the top elite level is Pac-12. So wh- how did that kind of shape your playing career, maybe decisions, what you're going to do after college golf, whether or not you're going to turn pro? What it, What was your I guess your experience just playing at such a dominant conference where you're just surrounded by great teams every single year. Yeah, that's actually a good question. So when I came to Cal, we'd only just founded a program in 95, 96, and I came 98. So it was really new. We were not very good. We hadn't been to postseason. We were a claiming program. And what I was fortunate to do was be a part of a program that went from, you know, never having made postseason, never thinking of it to our senior year. We went to the national championship and I think we finished 13th Yeah. Um, and just to be a part of that growth. So I would say that was one thing that really shaped me as a, as a person, as a coach, that kind of this constant um, evolution of development and striving to be the best you can be. But in that time period, I got to play with, yeah, Laura Ionello. You mentioned Laura. We played a ton together. Um, Grace Park. She was playing ASU. Uh, Lorena Ochoa. I got to play with. Kelly Comer, who's up at Washington, Paige McKenzie, who's in the Golf Channel. Yeah. Uh, I think through the, the UCLA players, the USC players, the Jennifer Songs of the world. I mean, it was incredible. Natalie Golbus. I mean, all these players, these were the players that we were we were playing with right. week in, week out, to your point. So here we are, this team at Cal who really doesn't deserve to be in the field, but because we're part of that conference, we got exposed to some of the world's best players who went on to be some of the legends of the game. And I really do think it was inspirational. And, um, and and you're also learning. I remember playing with Grace Park at Stanford Golf Course, believe it or not, on the 18th hole. And it kind of goes down this hill. And she hit this drive. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I had no idea people hit drives there. I literally didn't know that was a thing. And it was just then you leave and you think, okay, well, then that's a place I got to work. I got to figure out how to hit my drive there if I want to be in in the realm of winning against these players. Right. So I think that was, yeah, really, really an important part of my development, both as a player and as a coach. And I realized now being older, how fortunate I was to do that too, because, you know, you have these memories that are filled with some of the game over the last couple of decades, some of the game's most notable players. Right. Now, when, when you finish your career at Cal, how much of an impact do these players have on you and your decision on whether or not I want to try and play professionally? I'm wondering you know, would you have been maybe a, a bigger fish in a smaller pond if you're playing in a different conference and then you're thinking, well, hey, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to give this a shot. Or did maybe going up against these players, did that affect your decision to turn pro? Yeah. So that's a, that's a little more complicated. Um, okay. Being foreign, I did not have a work visa to be here in the United States. So I knew that if I went to tour school, I had to get my membership on tour to earn that work visa or otherwise I was going back to Europe. And I had already decided in my head I'd like to try to make this home at least for a short period of time um, when I was 22, when I graduated. And so, but simultaneously, you know, I'd seen some cracks in my game. I'd had some really good success, but if I was being honest, 
I had seen some cracks in it. You know, I'd seen there was a handful of things that I was doing that uh, Lorena Ochoa was not doing. (laughs) And she was just wired a little bit differently. So I would have loved a shot to go out there and I would have loved a shot to go play. But I was not fortunate enough to be in a position to really, you know, do that. But simultaneously, I was offered this amazing opportunity to be a coach. And, you know, you mentioned I was three-time captain. That was a team-voted situation. Sure. Over the years we were on the team. And so I'd known that there was, that I at least had a connection with players. I understood the game. I loved the game. Um, and I understood, I, Nancy was an amazing role model. I saw what she did and how she, we were all so influenced by her and continue to be influenced by her in our lives. And I, I was definitely attracted to all of that too. So when Nancy said, you know, I'd love for you to be my assistant coach that got the work visa one. And then two, it was opening the door. I thought, you know, I can see myself as a coach. I can see myself doing that and loving that as a career. And I think that's important. So kind of quickly put aside the clubs and became a coach. Sure. So, so did you necessarily think of this as a path until coach McDaniel brought this to your attention? Cause I mean, you see it a lot, at least I see it when I'm you know, talking to coaches, I always like to see, okay, who, who's their assistant, where'd that assistant come from? And, and, uh, invariably you see a lot of the assistants coming directly from that program or they were an assistant under their coach. Did you even think about coaching until it really became presented to you by coach McDaniel? Uh, again, if I was being completely honest, my senior year, I did a little bit, you know, okay. senior year is a weird time for any kid. Things are starting to come fast. The finish line is, is coming nearer than you really want it to come a lot quicker <laughs> than you want it to come. And, uh, I did. You know, it's funny. It's, and I could be crazy. The coaching, it's got its challenges, but gosh, it's a great way of life. And, and and I say that because I, yes, you're a golf coach, but first and foremost, you're an educator. At least this is how I look at it. And this is how I've approached it. Sure. Is you're an educator and you get to be part of an educational system. You're a mentor. You really get an opportunity to shape young women at a time when they're vulnerable and, you know, in a positive way, I mean that in the most positive ways that it's of young course. men are vulnerable in college too. It's, it's their a, first it's foray yeah, into weird, life. Yeah. It's a weird age. Yeah. It's your first time that your mom's not telling you what time to go to bed. She's not telling you what you're having for breakfast. Like you, and that part of it, I've never really lost sight of. And I always say, if I do lose sight of that, it's probably time for me to step back as a coach. I think that golf is, is a fun part of this and the, the competition part's really fun. I love it. I mean, I think that's clear. I, I love golf and I love competing. Um, but I certainly enjoy the mentorship and being an educator as much, if not more. That's great. That's great. So you, you're an assistant at, at Cal and then you get your, your, your head coach position at UC Davis. Now there we're in the midst of basically transitioning from division two to division one you did great there, really turned the program around, you know, multiple conference titles, got to a couple of national championships. You know, for people listening that follow golf or follow college golf casually, they may, you know, only know of the Stanfords and the Texas and the Wake Forest and uh, and the big name schools. So for the layman, for the person that maybe does not understand, what is the big difference you found between a Division two school and maybe a Division one school? Or is there much of one? No. So Davis had just made that transition. And uh, the big difference for us there was uh, our availability of scholarships. We had five in-state scholarships and the NC2A limit was six out of state. So we were working with a little less than half of what we, you know, our competitors were working with. Right. Um, So that was one big challenge. Our equipment budget was very minimal. We had three shirts that we had for tournament play. And, and, you know, and that's what's funny about that is that was, a you know, you talk to the coaches of the late 80s, early 90s, and that was standard practice. But 2008, 2009, 2010, when I took over at Davis, that was not standard practice. Um, but I think it, it for me, it was a good fit at the time because Davis is actually an agricultural town. Uh, I had that in my background. I felt like I could relate to those kids. I could recruit there. And one thing I remember talking to those kids about over and over and over, we focused on this all the time is, do you have a set of golf clubs? Yes, I do. (laughs) Well, then we can beat anyone in the country. And we talked about that so many times. We don't need 20 shirts. We need three shirts. We don't even need three shirts. We just need our clubs. 
And if we wow. have our clubs and our work ethic, we can beat anyone in the country. And I remember that was our mantra, you know, just for the whole time I was there because we had didn't really have anything else. <laughs> it was like we had to do more with less sure. or we weren't going to be good at anything. Uh, so it is a big difference. And I know that still exists, uh, that separation of the, the haves and the haves not in all college sports. And I think I've been fortunate to have been at Davis and then at Stanford, I've seen both sides and I have never forgotten what that was like to be at Davis. And I'm very sensitive to your peers who are, you know, they're trying to do the same as I'm trying to do every day when I wake up, which is do right by their kids, put them in a place to win and succeed. Right, right. Well, we're, we may have to cut that out about the limited, the shirts, because I know that Nike likes to dress your team in, in a lot of different options. So we may need to, we don't want Nike to hear about that. Or also your, yeah, also your players. I, I mean, I see the hall from, because my, my former college coach, uh, David Pizzino, when I played collegiately for a small NAIA school in Miami, he's now the head coach at, at UConn. He coaches the men at UConn. And, you know, invariably when the, uh, when the, the, the new gear comes out, there's always a little post from him. And I'm sure you post as well, all the, the, the shoes and the hats and the shirts and the bag. And I'm just looking at this stuff. I'm like, good gosh, that's a sporting goods store. Like what, what happened there? <laughs> so yeah, like- notice we're really well supported by Nike and a lot of other manufacturers too, but uh, primarily Nike when it comes to uniform and we're really fortunate. Yeah. So you, you get to Stanford where we were leading into Stanford. You're there in 2012. Um, and, and as I said about the PAC 12, you know, four out of four out of the last five national champions come from the PAC 12 and, you know, not every school in the PAC 12 gets this great weather year round. I know the, the California schools do in Arizona, but you got Washington, Oregon and Colorado. And I, you don't necessarily think of those States as a, a, you know, hotbed of golf. Can you explain why the PAC 12 produces such strong women's golf programs? No, that's a good question. I mean, I'm terrible with saying, so I'm probably going to get this one wrong too, but I think it's a, a high tide rises all ships or something to that effect. Okay. And I think that's true in the PAC 12, you know, I, you're surrounded. It's like I was saying when I was playing, it doesn't matter which program it is, whether it's Washington state who, suffers you know from tough winter weather they get to play with usc and that just elevates their game being around that you know or colorado comes in and plays in our event and and gets to be with you know us or um, ucla or other top ranked programs and elevates their program what ann's done at colorado what mary lou's done at washington what Derek's doing at oregon um oregon state all those schools it's amazing and i think a lot of that is because of the synergy that we're exposed to one another a lot and it inspires us to continue to push and we all get better together. Yeah. You're, you get this job and you're moving from UC Davis to, to Stanford, you know, you're, you're now being exposed to the best, I guess, conference in, in the country, the best players in the country, not only on the golf course, in the classroom. I'm going to mention a handful of names of your former players, but you know, Shannon O'Bear, she speaks four languages Albane Valenzuela speaks four languages. Andrea Lee won a Scholar Athlete Award in 2015. Lauren Kim got a degree in Science, Technology, Society. I still don't know what that is. And I've actually spoken <laughs> to a couple. I've spoken to Wu and Selinda. I still don't understand what that degree even means. Was it a little intimidating for you to first come to Stanford and be like, okay, you're in charge? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was. And it still is every day. Stanford... The success around here in our athletic programs is incredible. We're going on, I think it's 36 straight years of having a national championship. One team win a championship. And last year we had seven teams win national championships. So, you know, if you're not winning national championships, you feel like you're not doing your job here. And so I would say more, not necessarily with the student athletes or, um, the, the intimidation didn't come there. The intimidation came being surrounded by these coaches that are legends, absolute legends in their sport. Right. Tara Vanderbeer, who is one of the winningest female basketball coaches of all time, was on my interview committee. I remember when I got the interview and they sent out the itinerary for the day and it said lunch with Tara Vanderveer. I'm like, lunch with Tara Vanderveer? <laughs> Even if I don't get the job, I just ate lunch with a celebrity. Right. Um, and so I would say more the environment of Stanford. Uh, I think over time I've gotten more comfortable here, but certainly, yes, when I first got the job, I thought, what have I done? I'm going from UC Davis to coaching alongside uh, 
the likes of Jim Harbaugh and Tarwin Daru. Yeah, and when you're around the water cooler or just bumping into coaches uh, here and there, uh, yeah, I can imagine you just kind of want to be able to be on the same level. And yeah, I, I won my championship last year and we're going for another one. Yeah, exactly. But that's that's very much what it feels like. But it's also, Stanford's a great place to be. I, I would make mention, you know, these scholar athletes that we have, wow, they, they're so impressive. You, you mentioned a couple of them. At one point, a few years ago, when Shannon was on the team, Alban was on the team, Kareen Eichenboom was on the team. Uh, we had a young kid, Jisoo Keel, who was on the team. At one point, we had 12 different languages within our group. Good Lord. I know, right? Yeah, I and that that was a day when we we had a good laugh because I was asking if we could make the 13th Scottish, but no one signed up for that. <laughs> they're, they're a little too straight line. They're like, we're calling that English coach. Oh, um, okay. But they are impressive. And that's what a blessing for me to be able to spend my career around these types of kids. It's yeah. what they do on the course is remarkable, but what they do off is equally remarkable, if not more. The uh, the first time that I really became aware of the national championship or really started following college golf was actually the first year that um, uh, Golf Channel was televising it. It was women's match play or first time match play came to the women's side. This is the 2014-15 season. You win the national championship. And the thing that I remember the most is I'm watching this match and not so much as to who's playing, but I see this small girl that looks like she's made up of about 40% hair. And, of course, I'm talking about Shannon O'Bear. She's screaming her head <laughs> off when, when Stackhouse is, is running in putts. And when did you first meet Shannon O'Bear? <laughs> so Shannon was, she was always high in the rankings. I knew of Shannon. I get the job in 2012. Shannon's the top recruit for 14. So the 12 recruits were Mariah and Lauren. They were already, you know, in the door, done. Right. And for the most part, the 13s were close to the finish line. So 14. 14 was going to be my first like real class. I'm like, okay, I got to get this bear kid. So I email her, Shannon, she doesn't email back. I'm like, well, this is not going well. So I email her again. She doesn't email back. This goes on all summer. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like this is going to be, if I don't get Shannon O'Bear, then I don't even understand what I'm going to do here. I'm probably going to fail, be fired, all this stuff. Finally, out of nowhere, Shannon responds in the end of September. And she's like, hi coach, Stanford's my first choice. I'd love to come there. Thanks for all your emails. Da, da, da. Oh. And so then I'm like, well, hey, can I get you on the phone, kids? Yeah. And so <laughs> finally get on the phone to Shannon. And it was almost like love at first talk. I just adore that kid. She's so funny. She's so gregarious. But to know Shannon is to understand that she is just never going to respond to your email. She's going to see it, but she's all over the map. And so that was my first real interaction with Shannon O'Bear was she will never respond to your emails, oh. but if you get her on the phone, she'll woo you right off of your feet. And that has to, and I don't know about, but I mean, I'm assuming as a coach, you're a very detail oriented person. So I could just imagine by not getting emails, that just has to drive you nuts. Doesn't it? Oh, and I couldn't, I, right, I you couldn't, you just can't get it. emailing me. What, what is she doing? Where? And, uh, yeah, we, and we laughed about that ever since that time. Um, that was kind of always what I needed to learn is you remember when you completely ghosted yeah, me on yeah, email? Yeah. She's like, Oh coach. I'm like, no, no, I lost sleep for about three months actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, she went on to this, this incredible career. I think she was the first collegiate player ever to reach match play in all four of her uh, years uh, in, in college. And I mean, look, obviously the coaching's there, her talent got her there, the hard work and, and sacrifice. You can go down the list of things that make that make that happen, that make the national championship run happen. But I would think, and I could be 100% wrong, but I would think that another key to her success would be having a full set of golf clubs at all times, you know, like just in case you need them at a big tournament, like, you know, a Pac-12, like a Pac-12. I mean, you know, yep. I, I mean, is there a time maybe <laughs> when Shannon, uh, you know, did is am I missing something here? No, she was she was the best. And you're 100 percent right about Shannon. She uh, and I told her this many times, actually, when she was a freshman, she sat in my office. I said, we're going to win a championship with you on this team because you have the heart of a lion. And that heart is what's going to rally the troops around you. And it's I just know it's going to bring the best out of everyone. And so when she graduated at, at Oklahoma State, I knew that sure Shannon's golf game was a lost era program, of course, 
but more just Shannon O'Bear was a lost to her program in that moment. And we're lucky she ever came through here for four years, but um, she's a special person as far as the way people relate to her, her personality. It's, it's just very dynamic and it's magnetic as well. Like you just want to be around Shannon. She's absolutely hilarious. And so, yes, you're a hundred percent correct. The four years we made it and did so well to semifinals and finals and won. Uh, I, I've given a lot of credit to Shannon and, and I don't know that we'll ever have a run like that again, unless she plans to come back for a second time. Uh, and, and those are all great things to say about her, but come on, let's throw her under the bus a little bit. How did she forget half of her golf clubs to the Pac-12 championships? Well, first of all, she was a freshman. Oh, so oh, well, that, oh, well that's yeah, over there you time. Go. Like, okay. Every freshman, you don't know what they're going to do, but it's going to be something really dumb. Okay, And perfect. that's just part of being a freshman. They freak out because they've never done it really dumb before. Cause they're really smart Stanford kids, <laughs> but you, I don't freak out. Cause I'm like, well, yeah, you're a freshman. And I've been waiting for this moment. We didn't know what it was going to be. Wow. Um, we've had freshmen right off total golf carts. No joke. Like absolutely totally. Uh, we've had lots of stuff. Cause when you're a freshman, you just, yeah, you're just not totally dialed in. And so Tito, Shannon O'Bear, right. is, you know, bouncing right at the golf car of Pac-12. So this is so great. And we'd had a really tough spring that spring. We hadn't played uh, our full lineup in any event. We'd had a couple of surgeries for some minor things. The so kids were out. We had a kid go over her handlebars and her bike. So she was out with a rib issue. Uh, we finally got together at ASU. We thought we were going to be good. And one of our kids came down with the flu and missed two of the rounds and so pack 12s was the first time we're like okay we have our five we're healthy we're here this is so exciting yep we show up at the range and shannon's like uh coach i'm like yeah she's like i only have six golf clubs in my bag I'm like what do you mean you only have six golf clubs i've heard of 13 and i left my wedge yeah what do you mean you only have six where's your other eight golf clubs shannon and she's like I think I left them in the club washer on the range at Stanford. <laughs> what? And so, yeah. So then we looked to FedEx them overnight. We couldn't get it done. And we finally, we flew in one of her teammates. Her teammate went to the range, got the clubs, went to the airport, caught a flight, oh flew on the flight, gosh. came out, and uh, she had them for the first round. That's my girl, Shannon. And, you know, the funny thing was, too, like, she picked her bag up to go on the bus. She picked her bag up to go on the airplane. And so I walk over, and I'm like, Shannon. And you could literally pick her bag up. I mean, you could have thrown it up in the air. I said, it never occurred to me that, that your bag, when you because when you're missing, again, when you're missing one club, you don't notice. Yep. She was missing eight golf clubs. Just, just not. Oh. I mean, but that's so. If you only knew Shannon, she just talks nonstop. She was probably just like walked away from the club washer and left them all right there. That's fantastic. Um, wow. Okay. Well, hopefully it was an expensive. Let's just say oh, it was an expensive gosh. club leave. A last-minute flight to Denver on a Sunday night is not cheap. <laughs> I. Um, yeah. I. I I didn't want to know what, what the punishment was for that one. But, um, all right, let's highlight some good things, though. I want to ask you about this national championship that you won down in Bradenton. Uh, this is the one where I basically saw Shannon screaming her head off when Mariah Stackhouse was uh, was in this fantastic match against Haley Davis at, at Baylor. Golf Channel did a really nice feature kind of looking back at it. You're right there the whole time, or at least I'm, I'm assuming the last several calls, and – in the, in the recap, Mariah is talking about, oh, this is so much fun, and this is what you do it for, and this is great. And I'm just, I would just like to know as a coach, you know, you're there with, I'm assuming this is where you want to be. This is one of your stars. You got the national championship on the line. You're in there, you know, uh, right in the cauldron, reading putts and club selection. How do you approach that, knowing that everything you say, your your body language, everything you do is having a direct effect on your star player and potentially winning the national championship. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, what I remember about that Mariah and I were very close and continue to be really close. So I, I knew Mariah inside and out and Mariah coming through 13, she'd had a very tough hole in 13 and she was rattled. I mean, as rattled as I've ever seen her going to 14 T uh, 14 T she hit an okay shot, but it wasn't great, but she wasn't in a good place. And that's when I made the decision I don't know what's happening up ahead, but if we're going to have a chance to win this, I know Mariah Stackhouse has to be Mariah Stackhouse again. Right. And I felt confident enough in my relationship with her 
that I could get her there just by being with her a little bit and getting her back to, you know, relaxing a little bit. And so that's why I picked her up on 14th and ended up just staying with her the rest of the way. And 15 was more about, okay, let's just get back to present. You know, let's be where we want to be. It was all regular stuff. But then she, you know, one fifth or she actually, yeah, she tied 50. I can't totally remember. 16, she hit a great drive, but she lost 16. So she was two down with two to play. And at that point, you know, it was kind of like throwing a Hail Mary where I thought, okay, (laughs) the number one thing is if we don't win this thing, Mariah Stackhouse has to leave haven't had the best possible memory coming down 17 and 18. I never want her to look back and have this be a moment that she was like, Oh, you know, I didn't give it my all. And so we just went into full on, like, how cool is this? And that's what I was saying to her in 17 T I'm like, how cool is this? doesn't matter the outcome. This is what we play for. This is what we practice for. And yeah, other than that, the rest I knew we can't control, but we could control being really present and making sure that every step we were, we were loving it because these times are going to maybe never come again. And um, we we're just fortunate enough that energy was enough that when you give Mariah Stackhouse that sort of energy, Mariah Stackhouse can do pretty incredible things. We got we got lucky. No, we got lucky there that it translated into, you know, four of particularly two, but four of the best shots she's ever hit. Yeah. No, I, I liked watching that recap and, um, you know, this was your, your first national championship at Stanford. And, and, you know, I asked coach Ionello from Arizona, uh, when I, when I spoke with her, I said, how, how did you, how did your team celebrate after winning that? And they apparently are real crazy party animals in Arizona. They went to McDonald's at about two in the morning and got milkshakes and burgers. So I, I have to ask the same question. How do the, the Stanford women celebrate in Bradenton, Florida after winning a national championship? <laughs> Well, it's funny because we got done so late because of the extra holes. And then um, we went back to the hotel. And of course, you know, I say, of course, but you probably don't know this. That age group, win or lose, they love the Golf Channel feed. Uh They love, love, love watching themselves on TV. Uh So that's what they did. They went back and my sport administrator went and got them fast food brought it back to their hotel room and they all sat in the one hotel room and watched the three hour feed <laughs> and hooted and hollered. Like they didn't know what the ending was. That's pretty much exactly what Arizona did, except for the fact that they, the kids grabbed Ubers and made it to McDonald's themselves. But that is yeah, basically hilarious. the exact same thing. Of course, theirs was super late because it was, Oh, that was Stillwater where they won. So it was, yeah. And it was also extra holes. So it goes yeah. extra late. Interesting. Okay, so same thing. It's a Pac-12 thing. Junk food and and watching replays. Perfect. Um, now keep in mind, it's all that's really open at that oh, time. So. Hey, hey, we're not counting <laughs> calories when we got a trophy in our hand, are we? We don't. We're, we're not. We're not. I don't know it. that I can. My, my team's not totally known for a lot of junk food, but when they won the national championship, it was Chick Fil A all around. Oh yeah. Well, that's actually that's actually the uh, that's that's four star cuisine of of of, uh, of fast food. Um, all right. I want to add now, this is, we've, we've looked down, uh, you know, the, the past and the successes, but one of the things I really want to make sure we hit on is we have a lot of listeners, parents of juniors, juniors themselves that listen to this podcast. I love getting into this kind of topic of college golf where, um, you know, we're, you know, what did, what should juniors focus on? You know, I was at, I was a couple of weeks ago, I'm at the range and, and one of the, the pros there is, um, his daughter, you know, she's great. She's, top 10 in her age group in the state she's won junior titles and you know it's she's 14 she's kind of getting ready for that that time in her life where um you know it's time to get recruited or she wants to play college golf and you know some of the things that she was saying to me she's like you know there's a lot of pressure you know I want to win I want to play well but I also know that there's coaches that are googling my scores and they're going to be at these tournaments and there's that extra pressure um you know, she might not play at Stanford. She might not play at Florida State, but she's going to play somewhere. I mean, she is that good. She will get a scholarship to play somewhere in college. What is perhaps just a generic or general message that you could give to girls, boys at that age when they're getting started on college recruitment so that they can keep enjoying the game and not feel kind of the the pressure that they may have put on themselves? Yeah, it's a great question. And I'm a parent myself. So I I worry that 
you know, when this day comes, because I think as a parent, it's hard too. It's very hard. You want to walk this fine line between supporting them and telling them not to worry, but internally you also know that it's a really important time. So how do you guide them and make sure they make good decisions during that time too? Right. Um, I would say the number one thing is there's so many places you can play and you just said it, if it's not Florida state, it's not Florida, it'll be somewhere. And I think when you're a junior golfer, your world is very small. Your perspective is very small. So you probably only know of two, three, four of your favorite colleges that you could play. And that's what gets stuck in your head. And where are those colleges? Well, they're going to be, you know, the the Stanford's, the Texas, probably the USC, the Florida, the ones you just have heard of and you know of, but there's so many places to play. So just keeping your head down and not worrying about that, allow that to take care of itself uh, and just keep your head down. And if you love the game, play the game, play a lot. I mean, that's one thing we see in the junior side that, you know, we always preach that at our camps too, is if you want to get good at playing golf, play golf and we've seen over time there's a lot of play golf swing and it just doesn't translate right uh and then it's like you're you're investing this time but you're investing it in a way that it doesn't really carry over into what will ultimately take you to where you want to be and so play golf as much as you can even if it's nine holes it's worth getting that two hours out there playing uh, and then the other thing is really sticking at your academics. Uh, we've been a little bit shocked over the last few years how that has become a very much a back burner thing. And unfortunately, what it does is it limits kids and options. And so like one thing we'll see here at Stanford is I, I'll shoot a kid a note and I'm like, gosh, I'd love to have that kid on my team. Really good. And academically, they're not a fit and they're not far off, but they're not a fit. And, and I think at times they're kind of blown away by that. Like, oh, man, you know. There, there will be more options for you nationally, and you can even create some of your own options if your academics are strong. And so continuing to work hard in the classroom simultaneously. Plus, we also know that things don't always work out in life. And, sure. you know, you, you mentioned Shannon O'Bear. Shannon's dealt with just horrific wrist injuries from the age of 15, 16, 17, and it was just getting worse. And and professional golf became not an option for Shannon because of those, even though she was one of the top ranked juniors for a period of five years, yeah. everyone would have thought she would be a professional, but those little niggling injuries took that away from her. So fortunately for Shannon, she had parents that had, you know, held her accountable academically. She earned her Stanford degree and now she's just killing it in Miami at a, uh, She's a business analyst. She's a uh, yeah, a business analyst. Thank you. And so I would say that don't don't put academics on the back burner. Life is long, and the biggest insurance and best insurance policy you can buy yourself is to get yourself a great education. So those would be my my uh, big points of um, advice: play as much golf as you can, play, and stay stay committed in school. And then the final piece there, and there's a lot of places to play, keep that in mind. But the final piece is too, don't worry too much. I mean, I think it's hard on these kids now. Uh, when I played, if I shot an 85, just had a really rough day, no one saw it. Unless you were digging deep in the newspaper right. to see what I shot, no one saw it. And I feel bad for these kids. Every time they tee up and post a score, it's on the internet and it's permanent. So I can go, when I start recruiting a player and I look them up, I can see what they did for the last three years, pretty much everywhere they've been. Yeah. Uh, and so I do feel like that's a tough level of accountability to carry as only a 13 or 14 or 15 year old when you're really growing and learning. And so t- just know that, know that coaches know that we know that each kid has their own progress curve, their own performance curve, where you're at on the curve is going to be different at different times. We know that. Uh, I think I would say also the, one of the things I see that just breaks my heart is I, I go to watch a, a young lady and she's just having a terrible day and I can see she's just looking at the corner of her eye at me and she feels like the weight of the world's right. on her shoulders. Yeah. Dad's like, Oh great. The Stanford coach is here watching and you're shooting 85. Yep. We, we know that we're not really looking at your score, you know, like give us more credit than that. We're not looking at your score. So we're looking at other stuff, your fundamentals, your move, the move you make it out, how you handle yourself, how you carry yourself, your ball flight, the way you're working the ball, your short game, your putting. We're looking at all of that. And half the time, I get to, you know, I usually watch in, in chunks of holes, whether it's be nine or six or whatever. I don't really know how, what you're scoring. I mean, I know when it's like having a really tough day, but more I'm just looking at the pieces of it all. Right, so right. don't 
yeah, don't stress too much about bad days. And, and the same, if you're having a good day, if you shoot a 65, when your coach is the coach from the desired school is watching, doesn't mean you're going there. Cause that coach also knows via the internet, you've never broken 70. So to my point, I would not have gone to Cal if the internet had existed. Cause when I, when I said, Oh yeah, I always play like this. <laughs> coach McDaniel would have said, no, you don't. No, you Cause don't. I can see on the internet that you're telling them this truth. Nice. So, um, I don't know about you, but, but I'm yeah. really glad the internet didn't exist when I was, you know, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. So, but, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, just all of that combined. And gosh, I can't imagine how hard it is to be one of these junior golfers or even more a golf parent. It's everyone wants it so bad and, um, just trying to do the best they can to get their kid in a good spot. Well, you kind of answered this question already, but I, I'm really, I really like this question. So I'm just going to give you a hypothetical situation here. You're at a junior tournament. You see three girls. They really have potential, great swings. Let's just say they're all right-handed, same height, and they all shoot between like 73 and 75. So basically everything you could see, all the measurables are roughly the same. If you were spending lunch with them, what are some of the things you'd want to kind of find out that maybe would help you make a decision whether or not that's a player I want to go for other over than the other two? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, that goes back to also what I said about Coach McDaniel when she was recruiting me. There was just an instant connection there. I, I just trusted her. It was easy. The conversation was easy. We were kind of in the same cadence, the same tempo. Um, that's that's really what I'm looking for is because yeah. you're going to spend a significant amount of time with these junior golfers, these players and their parents. Cause in a way the parents become part of the program. I, you know, ideally on the periphery, but right. they're part of it and um, making sure that that connection is one that's built on trust from the get go. And one that's going to be, there's going to be good, good times are going to be tough times. And if I'm doing my job correctly too, we're going to build on the foundation that you already have. And that's going to take you being having courage when I say, you know, that putter, I know you love it and you've had it since you were nine and it's, it's 28 inches long, <laughs> but we're going to go to a 33 inch, you know, mallet or whatever. And here's why. And I want you to experiment with this and see if this is something that works for you. These types of conversations, if there's not a, a rapport there between coach and player, um, it, it just doesn't work. So I'm, I'm always looking for that in the recruiting process. I will always want to bring a kid in that I feel like, wow, this is someone that over the course of four years, uh, she's going to thrive here at Stanford. She's going to thrive hopefully under leadership and, and, and be a great kid to coach, very coachable. So I would uh -huh. say that is the intangible. Yeah. Um, well, I'm I'm gonna get you out of here with just a couple more. I know you got things to do today, and I appreciate all this this great time you've been able to spend with us. And of course, you know I'm I'm gonna I gotta ask about Q series. I, I'm I'm I've prolonged or I've I've postponed it as long as I can, but I I just want to ask you this because it's kind of a hot topic with college with women's college golf, the LPGA. So as the casual golf fan may know, may not know, two of your seniors that that would have been playing for you this spring have, uh, they got their card at, at Q series, uh, Alvin Valenzuela, Andrew Lee, they're term pro, you know, two of the most decorated players in, in history. So I'm kind of bringing their names up just because it relates to Stanford, but I'm also curious what your thoughts are on this and on this system, just in general, where an amateur can go to Q series, try and get their card. If they do, they can turn pro then, or they can defer until later. You know, the, the, like I said, the casual golf fan may say, well, I don't understand why they're leaving early. You know, they committed to four years of college golf. They're going to get a degree. There's not really, you know, in golf, there's no signing bonus. There's no guaranteed four-year deal like there is in baseball or football or, or basketball. You know, career-ending injuries are not that common in golf. Wouldn't it make more sense for them to stay and just finish out their college career wouldn't that increase maybe their marketability if they throw in a national championship in their senior year does this system change the way you recruit does it change the way you approach your team yeah i think those are all good questions um well first of all alban and andrea i mean when they left this fall they were number one and number three in the world amateur rankings and in the four years they've been here, I don't think either of them have really fallen outside the top five in the world amateur golf rankings very often. So they're 
extraordinarily talented players, and they're certainly ready for the LPGA. There's no question. Uh, what has ramped up this early departure is, I think we go back two years ago when LPGA formed the Q Series, they put an exemption in there for the top five players at the end of the season per golf week to be exempt into the final stage of Q Series. And that was unpopular with coaches, but it was also unpopular with the players on tour who felt like you were taking apples to oranges, but it's not the same thing. These players have competed in a, a college circuit for a whole year and they have an exemption into this very valuable Q series finals where there's going to be 45 tour cards Yeah, and there's only give or take 80 to hundred players in the field. So that first year it kind of got reworked and, and then it was understood. Okay. That, that maybe that was, they were just jumping on too, too quickly. So this past year, the top five at the end of last season, were immediately exempt to second stage Q series. And then there's also a world amateur golf ranking exemption. I believe it's for the top 15 automatically go to second stage. So these carrots for these top amateurs um, in the world, that's not going away. That's going to continue to be there. I understand it from the LPGA side. Gosh, I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. They want the best product they can have. Well, if the best product is Andrea Lee, they want to create a pathway that Andrea can get out on tour to make their product better. So I fully understand that. Um, unfortunately, there is a little bit of collateral damage in the college golf scene and that we've seen, I think last year we had five kids leave early, but then we did have Maria and Jennifer stay. And this year we've had five players or maybe even six players leave the college scene early. So I think what we're trying to figure out as, as a college golf association is how do we adjust to the new normal? Because we've had great conversations with the LPGA. You know, I will, I'll say that when this all flared up a couple of years ago, uh, we started dialogue through the PAC 12 actually, um, because it's, the PAC 12 has been significantly hit with this the past few years, Arizona, Arizona state, yeah. USC, UCLA, we've lost two this year. And that's probably not going to change if we continue to be the dominant conference. Um, and you know, Alabama, they, they too lost two last year. So, with that, the LPGA opened up dialogue and, and it's nothing more than trying to help them understand from our perspective and, and what happens there in, in the wake of this departure. And then for us to understand where they're coming from. And, and I think it's been a very good collaboration and I see a partnership there that hopefully will continue for, for years to come. In fact, we have a conference call with them this week. So they want to grow the game. They want to get it right. But right now we can't come together to find a clear way to do that. And so I think this is going to come going to, excuse me, continue to come up year over year. And quite frankly, I, you know, I can't fault the players. I look at Andrea and Alban and I told them both this when, when they told me, I knew this was coming. These kids are being two of the world's top amateurs and Q school is gruesome and it's hard. And they both ended up coming out with pretty good status. Yes, they're both ready. And for me, I'm saying, well, you know, May's five months. I think any adult, all the adults that have reached out to me <laughs> have said five months is nothing in the scheme of life. I think that's accurate. But when you're 22, five months seems like an eternity. Oh, sure. And so that's just a, a difference in perspective that you can't shift. That's nature versus nurture. It's there. We're not shifting it. Uh, five months is an eternity when you're 22. So with that, but what I told both those players is that they're ready. And, you know, I'm happy, I guess, for me that Stanford University, not only did we put them in a position to go and 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 be great, Alban has full status, Andrea has partial. Um, we got to be part of that and they're they love their time here. The deal breaker for me is if they're not getting their degree. And I've been very clear about that is I, I can, I wish they were playing for my team this spring. Of course I do. Cause we would have been tough to beat. Right. But at the end of the day, I love those kids. I love that they came through here. Andrea has the most wins in history. She's the most decorated player in Stanford golf history. Yep. Albans are first pac 12 player of the year. They have moved the needle for our pro program. They flew the flag. They will continue to fly the flag, but they would have, faced a very angry coach Walker if they were not getting their degree okay. and both of them are getting their degree. And that for that, I am really, really proud because I think as young women, you have to be educated, especially as Stanford education and life is long. There's not that much money out on tour. Most women, hopefully neither of them have to work again. Hopefully they're so successful, but most women have to work after their tour career 
And I want to make sure that when both of those two or whoever, if they have to go to work coming out of this program, they have that degree in their back pocket and they can go be great. That's well said. I, um, I can't really argue with, with your stance on it. I totally agree that it's, uh, you know, they're both ready and, and it, it hurts, you know, in the short term, yes, it does hurt your chances for a national championship, uh, this spring, but, um, but you're right. They're, they're great representatives of Stanford and that's very interesting. And uh, that's fantastic that you're so adamant about the degree because they're they're basically the degree part was the non-negotiable. I mean, and ultimately it would be their decision. Unfortunately, I could not have held them here, but they're both intelligent young women. They really right. are. I, I I just um they're they're pretty spectacular, quite frankly. And I just I know that they're gonna look back and be so glad that they're educated and they have that degree. And so I'm really proud of them for doing that. And, I, you know, I'm totally biased. I, of I just adore both of them, but I think they're going to be great and they're ready. And I wouldn't be surprised to see them both compete for a tournament at some point this year. And if not this year, next. Well, coach, I, I can't thank you enough. This has been fantastic. I, I appreciate you kind of uh, walking us through uh, your beginning of the game and then your history as a coach, but also just a lot of great information that I think, uh, you know, juniors, parents of juniors are going to take a lot of, uh, they're going to take away a lot from this episode. So, Thanks for joining me here at the back of the range. Hoping to do it again soon and uh, enjoy uh, enjoy the spring. Cool. Thank you. And uh, really appreciate you thinking me, Ben. And there you have it. Special thanks to Ann Walker for joining us this week at the back of the range. Always great insight from one of the best coaches in collegiate golf today. Don't forget, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Every episode is available at thebackoftherange.com. Next week, episode 118, Jack Nicholas. We'll see you next week for that special episode here at the Back of the Range.